Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I am honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode 21 of season one of This Osteopathic Life. I come to you after a bit of a hiatus and have taken what I'd call an incidental vacation. It's not always easy for me to turn off and not work and just be. And a various combination of life events made it so this past week, that's precisely what I was able to do. And it was fantastic. I was able to just hang out, read books leisurely, go to the beach, be with my family and play cards into the night. All the things that make up summer in Michigan for any of you Midwest natives who might have spent time in your youth and hopefully time in your adulthood doing so. I realized I could have recorded a podcast in advance and posted it and maybe going forward I'll be able to do that. But I also appreciate just the moment to take a pause and just be In the course of this week, on some of my time spent driving in the week prior, which is not vacation-like activity for me, and also in some time walking and running through town, I've been listening to various podcasts and spending more time with Oprah's soul-soothing conversations. No, super soul conversations. Hybridizing that name. And an interesting combination of speakers and concepts came through. And two words kept coming up for me, and they've been part of some of the more recent podcasts here as well. And I sat with them and thought with them in terms of the osteopathic care of patients and approach to health personally and professionally. And so today, going to touch on the concept of resistance and surrender. And resistance comes up in a number of different ways in our current political climate, you know, the importance and the encouragement and the movement of resistance to not just accept the status quo to stand up for human rights when it seems they have been compromised or violated in any circumstance from any source to band together and stand with one another as individuals, creating a collective and not just accepting that which is mandated at us or toward us. And I would hesitate to say for us. As I mentioned previously, I'll be engaging in a health policy fellowship to better understand on a deeper level some of these 
behaviors and the act of creating policy and how to influence it as a citizen. And I thought about resistance in that manner, in the positive manner, in the necessary manner, in the stand together and in some ways fight manner. And like you do, when you talk about a word, you look it up. And interestingly, the two definitions that came up were these. First, the refusal to accept or comply with something, the attempt to prevent something by action or argument. And like anything, my tendency is to try to pull the most useful, the most positive, most health-oriented piece from that. And I think about when I talk with my children, and as much as all the time together has been fabulous, certainly all the time together leads to potentially more conflicts, especially when that time together comes in the confines of a vehicle. And there are a lot of directives given in parenting, and we try to have dialogue in our household. But man, sometimes you just want people to cooperate, which can also be sometimes just to obey. But at the same time, I know I want to train or educate my children to just be complicit, to do something because someone told them to do so. So we always have the discussion that we should understand why we're doing something and that why might simply be because it needs to be done you know, for the maintenance of the household, for the good of the family. But we should always understand why. We don't always have to like it. You know, we don't always like our chores and the responsibilities that we have. But as long as they're not harming us, as long as they're not harming someone else, we still need to do them. And that's something I encourage in all the times we engage and we interact so that we have awareness, so that we have consent. You know, it can be begrudging consent if it's a matter of emptying the dishwasher or sweeping the floor. And we're training those on the micro level so that as socially things get more complex, there's that baseline of understanding. And certainly it's frustrating. And sometimes you think, gosh, just do it because I said so. But I really don't want that to be the case. And I want there to be opportunity for concerns to be heard. You know, perhaps the directive was perceived as compromising to that person or threatening. And if we can hear that concern from them, we can, again, acknowledge their perception, talk through it, and hopefully move forward effectively and efficiently. And I know there's this sense of permissive parenting and letting kids do whatever they want and lack of respect and cooperation. And that's not the intent behind this in this circumstance. And finding that way to be more deliberate, more clear, more assertive with it is always where this is hopefully progressing. I think about that as I consider patience presenting as well from both ends as the participant and 
what they bring to me as the physician. And I would never want someone, to, again, to engage in a treatment that they don't understand, that they don't consent to, that they haven't explored. If they have questions about it, seeking a second opinion, you know, I always encourage utilizing the expertise that's available and cross-referencing that can be useful. And similarly, when a patient brings to me, you know, in this world of access to all the information, patients will often come with a hope for a treatment or something about which they've read or researched and want to engage in that. And I can't effectively, appropriately prescribe something that I don't have the knowledge of the risks and benefits and a firm and confident sense in the appropriateness of that care for their complaint. And that may require me to gain education, to speak to a physician who has greater expertise in that area and bring that back to the patient um, with dialogue. And we can make that decision together where both of us are, excuse me, informed and consent and comfortable to that treatment. So that refusal to accept or to comply with something, I do think is important. That there should always be that moment, that pause, that do I understand this? Do I really want to do this? Am I willfully going into this with anything? And understanding the reasoning behind it and not just mindlessly going along with. We tend to get into some herd mentality my husband and boys were just at an event and everybody was queuing up, you know, and they'd say, why are you getting in line? They said, I don't know, everybody else is getting in line. And that certainly is not the mentality I would wish for myself or my children or my patients. And we can certainly be cooperative, but it should be informed, willful cooperation. The second part of that first definition was the attempt to prevent something by action or argument. And that latter part was interesting for me in the context of a podcast through Oprah with Byron Katie, who is an author and coach who published something called The Work and the concept of these four questions. And I'm very much distilling this down to the Cliff's Notes version, but that our our thoughts are the cause of our suffering. And we can think of suffering in many different ways. But if we think about suffering as far as health, you know, diseases and ailments and certainly stress and mental health challenges and anxiety and depression, looking at that suffering and that most of it comes from this contention or this resistance to our thoughts and concepts. And in this podcast, she kept saying that, you know, defense is an act of war and it belongs on paper. And Oprah posed some questions back. And as I was listening, you know, trying to think, can I wrap my head around that? And what I hear in that latter part of the definition of resistance by action or argument, my tendency is to lean into action and to say that feels better. That feels more positive and you know, shy away from the word argument. And then I think about that in my kind of conflict-averse nature. And maybe argument could be reframed as discussion. 
or dialogue, you know, rather than just refuting or denying or countering, maybe asking, you know, maybe engaging, again, maybe getting to that understanding level. And again, preventing things like injustice and unfairness and violence and evil, if we're taking that to more extremes, certainly necessary. But can we do that in a positive way? You know, can we bring a sense of health and support to that rather than just a no or a refusal or a denial? second definition of resistance came up as the ability not to be affected by something, especially adversely. And this one, again, if you're making podcasts, you listen to podcasts, participate in the entire ecosystem of listening and learning. And one my husband sent to me was on Russell Brand's podcast when he was interviewing Wim Hof, who has developed this method of breathing and exposure to the elements that has shown to be able to prevent disease and improve stress management and improve tolerance to extremes of temperature and various elements of exposure. And it's interesting because it feels to me both like he's developing the resistance component, if I read this definition, but also some surrender. He's going back to his natural way of being. You know, he's tapping into the most primitive aspects of the human brain to allow him to do these things. So it's a fascinating balance between the two. And this ability to not be affected by something, especially adversely, is interesting because it almost, again, feels like something is able to move through, right? Like the water rolls off the duck's back. We might be faced with adverse circumstances, but they don't. We don't internalize them. They don't affect us profoundly. It's interesting to me that that came under resistance. Uh, resistance often sounds like a fight. You know, you're fending it off, and this almost feels more passive, like you're able to just let it go. And I appreciated that because I was looking at the counterpoint of these two concepts. And when you look at resistance from a physics standpoint, you know, kind of its counterpoint or opposite is conductance, that ability to move through. Um, so it was a really interesting concept for me. And I think about with patients, you know, we take histories and you can have a patient who has had all kinds of complex and horrific events in their life, and they're doing pretty well. And another who might have had that, those same or similar exposures and is suffering from any number of diseases and ailments and stressors ongoing, and you're often posed with that, why? You know, what are those key issues that allow one, again, to have the resistance, the ability to not be affected so adversely by their environment and circumstance. And the other two suffer from the disease. And it poses the question of how much is within our conscious or subconscious control. And I do want to make the point 
that I'm not saying anyone is you know, at fault if they do suffer from disease as a result of various exposures in their life, but more from the perspective of hope and where is our opportunity to influence for the better our circumstance and our ability to cope, to survive, and to thrive you know, through these various complications. So I'll come back to a quote I found from Byron Katie, somewhat separate from this podcast, but she alludes to it quite a bit in her discussion with Oprah. And she says, I discovered that when I believed my thoughts, I suffered, but that when I didn't believe them, I didn't suffer, and that this is true for every human being. Freedom is as simple as that. I found that suffering is optional. I found a joy within me that has never disappeared, not for a single moment. And she's asked the question during this interview when this revelation happened for her, and it was 22 years ago. And she stated repeatedly that she has not suffered since then, that she has not been, quote-unquote, victim to her thoughts. And Oprah exclaimed at that, like, how is that possible? I thought that, really? You know, never for one moment. And it's an interesting concept. You know, if we think ourselves well, if we think ourselves ill, and we can come into that. You know, I myself know we've had some stressful engagements recently in our life. And when you're talking about hard concepts, you know, you feel it viscerally. You know, there's pain in areas, your breathing changes, your heart rate changes. The stress is manifesting in these physical ways. And those are the ones that I can take note of, take inventory of personally. I'm sure on a micro level, many other negative things are happening in the body when we're dealing with these thoughts and they are doing research with that. Again, in the Wim Hof example, exposure to viruses and functional MRI scanning of his brain when stress is introduced and watching for the ability to you know, either be vulnerable to that or to be resistant to it. And this is something I'll be investigating in an ongoing fashion and working with patients to see what is within our control. You know, where can we take an active role in our ability to not be as adversely affected by something and participate in a meaningful, but maybe not contentious, resistance. The concept of surrender, I spoke about a bit, I believe back in the Moana episode, two episodes back. Um, And surrender, again, we could think of as this defeatist word, where you're just giving up and giving in and, you know, no longer actively involved and just whatever happens, happens. And I think there's space for Surrender to still be a very active and willful piece of our lives and allow it to be us saying, we understand that there's so much we can control and that there's much that we cannot and we're giving into that willfully, intentionally. And one concept I've been working with myself and encouraging, especially my oldest, who tends to get worked up in 
outcomes, um, particularly in sport for him, that we can actively set an intention, but then let go of the result. And with patients, certainly this is the case, right? We want for patients to improve, to move farther along on the path of health that they've outlined for themselves. We would like for disease to be eradicated. We would like for them to have more peace and less pain. And those are all intentions we can set for them and hopefully with them and encourage them to set and pursue and acknowledge. But the next piece where the work can really happen and we allow for freedom of you know, the mechanisms of the body to really take over is to let go of the result and to understand that there's only so far we can take things and then the body, the mind, the spirit have to take over and we can't force it. And usually, you know, the enemy of good is better is a phrase we often used in residency. When you do that, just one more thing or this last tweak, you can often overshoot it you know, and you can do too much. And understanding that fine line between enough and more than was needed is part of the art of medicine and the art of life. So can we take some action and even resistance? You know, if we're talking about preventing something, preventing disease from setting in, but then letting go of the result. And I think that release that letting go that invitation that space for ease to enter in is a part that often gets missed it gets overlooked it gets skipped and we kind of really watch expectantly and actively and aggressively and we think of that example of like holding sand in your hand if you try to squeeze it it all runs through your fingers if you can hold it gently in an open palm it will stay there And I think in a world where we're supposed to have fast answers and be the doers and the knowers, there can be a lot of pressure to, you know, really shepherd things all the way through to the finish. And it takes some maturity. It takes some level of confidence and faith to say, you know, this is the plan. This is the expectation. There is no guarantee And that can be really hard. That can be really hard when folks are sick and they want to know exactly what's going to happen. And it can be hard not to have 100% deliverable for them. But that's also humanity. And that's sometimes where we have to be and where we have to really educate and nurture the capacity to, you know, be patient and listen and wait a bit and see what happens. Certainly listening with intelligence and if some other intervention needs to be made along the way, we can do so. But trusting a bit in that inherent capacity for health and healing in the body and that if we're able to nudge a person into the current of optimal health and support, that they will move toward better they will move toward health and 
that the result is not really fully within our control. So as I've been exploring different books and resources, uh, Richard Rohr is the person that came up and we studied the Enneagram in residency. One of my co-residents brought it to us. And if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's a type of personality assessment. It classifies basically all of humanity in through nine various types. And it's an interesting way to understand yourself, to understand others, to gain insight into communication style and thought processes. And it helped us as a collective, you know, in residency, you're thrown together for a lot of hours every day and you have to take care of patients together and you have to communicate and you have, you know, staff working with you and you have your directors and your teachers working with you as well. And it helped us to better know how the other was thinking and how to present things that might be heard um, in a clearer way based on types. And I've got some new books recently on this and have certainly fallen into the trap of overclassifying someone. You're so this or, oh, that's such a sick thing to do, which is not the intention. But having that insight into how we think and process and feel and how it's the same as others and how it's different from others can be really helpful. And I didn't know this. Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan monk, is a prime teacher of the Enneagram, and he's an inspiration for the authors of the book I happen to be reading. So I like to investigate. And he also happened to have a podcast with Oprah, to which I listened and two of his quotes I found interesting, and I, he has various support and detractors in the religious world, and I don't see it necessarily from a religious perspective, but from a thought perspective, from an insight perspective. So perhaps take the author as you will, but see what you think about some of these quotes that he noted we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. And from an action standpoint, I find that one very interesting. And I spend a lot of time in my head. You know, I tend to overthink and, you know, plot everything from every angle before acting. And it's an interesting concept to, you know, live it and see how that influences our thinking and again, for patients, both ways, you know, are we thinking ourselves well? Are we living ourselves into the possibility of a mindset that allows us to think ourselves well? I think it's an interesting contemplative point. And then the other that I found from him is that enlightenment is something you fall into when you get out of the way. And I think that lends itself to that latter definition of resistance discussed earlier, as well as surrender. And understanding that we simply can't force things, you know, greater awareness or enlightenment. You know, we can't just will ourselves into. It requires some level of, you know, I keep coming back to passivity, which really isn't how it feels, but that's the best word I have in the moment. That there, 
we have to give it space. You know, we have to stop overthinking. And I'm giving this directive very much to myself as much as to anyone else that we have to allow for it to happen. And in treatment with patients, you know, the most significant outcome happens when that space is allowed. There's engagement, there's presence, there's intention, but there's also space and there's room for whatever movement needs to happen, whatever the patient might need to uncover for themselves, be that verbally or just nonverbal emotional release or drawing lines, making connections between life events and physical symptoms and seeing what habits have actually been recurring that could be optimized in a different way. I think it's so important and really hard because we are in a culture of more, better, faster now doing. We're not necessarily in a less waiting space, pause. I might not have the direct answer for you. So that's what I'm taking into the week with me coming through this vacation week and getting back to work the next couple days here. The idea of resistance and surrender. And I challenge you to think about those concepts, investigate them, look at how you are applying them or ignoring them in your daily life for your own health, for my physician colleagues, for your work with patients, and how you can more effectively utilize them to nurture the health of all things. This is Dr. Amelia Beeky with This Osteopathic Life. Please do find the podcast on iTunes, rate and review. And we're coming up to the six-month anniversary next week. So hopefully some new exciting things will be on the website. And we'll look at getting a tangible event together. So perhaps we can gather and discuss concepts and embrace the health together. Thank you for listening.